This is The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. The public's perception of our courts continues to be a topic of concern and curiosity for court professionals. Last month, we discussed the National Center for State Courts 2021 State of the State Court Survey that found that public trust in the courts had declined to 64% from a high in 2018 of 76%. This month, we'll take a deeper dive into several areas of interest. How much influence does the ability to be heard in court affect public perception? Does the public look at different levels of courts differently? What role do lawyers play in prompting differing views between general jurisdiction and limited jurisdiction courts? And how does the development of remote hearings play into case flow efficiency and the public's perception? I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month, we're looking into some specific questions about why the public views the courts the way they do. My co-host today is Stacy Werby state jury coordinator for the Alaska court system. The folks we'll be asking are the Honorable Yvette Alexander, judge with the city court in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The Honorable Ed Spillane, judge with the municipal court in College Station, Texas. Rick Pierce, judicial programs administrator for the administrative office of the Pennsylvania courts. Kent Pankey, senior planner with the Supreme Court of Virginia. And Sarah Brown-Clark, elected clerk of court for the Municipal Court in Youngstown, Ohio. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. And Stacy, will start off with a question. Judge Alexander, how do you think the people you see would rate your court in terms of trust and confidence? And how has that changed over the years? The only thing I would like to say is that I've been on the bench for 27 years and I've seen the confidence of people the American people go up and down where the court system is concerned, just like any other issues or any of the other issues in America. The American public goes up and down by what point or what period you're talking to them. When I first was on the bench 27 years ago, there was a, a part of my community who thought that the court system would rate the court system high. And there was a part of my community who would rate it low. But over the years with diversity, equity, inclusion, all those things being considered by the courts and to the point where the courts are now, I believe that both communities that I live in would rate the court system in Baton Rouge with the high marks. The higher the court is, probably the lower the marks they would get, <laughs> only because the people don't really know what those courts do. But in a court system where they have touched the system or their family has touched the system, they can do a better sense of judgment. But if I had to rate my court system myself, I would give it an A+. I'm thinking... Sarah Brown-Clark... Municipal Court, Youngstown, Ohio. I'm thinking about um, Judge Alexander's comments, and she hit on a lot of different things. But I think that um, trust and confidence is certainly impacted by the individual's interaction with the court. And in that regard, I would state that as a clerk of court, 
I have a less formal interaction with users than do judges. And as a consequence, I think that we have a role that can ease some of the negativity about the courts in how we interact and the way that we provide customer service. Now, that is on a local level, but um, when we start talking about the national trends, we have to recognize that we're living in a totally new era where technology has allowed individuals the opportunity to look across the country, look at decisions, sometimes in real time, And so that impacts their perception of the court. One of the critical things, because when we talk about public trust and confidence, we as court employees really want to improve the public response. And I think that one of the things that we can do is understand that individual responses are based on demographics, and they're also based on accessibility to the court. And that becomes very important because we're, we're using more and more technology, assuming that everyone has access and right. that is not the case. And so that becomes prohibitive for a lot of people and they feel as though they're excluded and they don't have the opportunity to express themselves the way that they would like to do that. I think another a variable apart from the technology and the widespread exposure they get has to do with media hostility. The story is not when the courts have operated effectively based on public opinion. The story is when the public does not appreciate the court action. And so we see a lot of negativity. You don't pick up your paper and see where Judge Alexander or Judge Spillane handled a case beautifully and the outcome was based on public expectation. But you do pick up the paper, you may pick up the paper and see that they feel that Judge Alexander and Judge Spillane ruled unfairly on a motion that was filed on behalf of the defendant. So we have to be cognizant of that. Now, the level of interaction that individuals have with a court is also significant. Because let's be honest, if your outcome suits you, you love the system. If your outcome does not suit you, we're all corrupt, incompetent, unfair, and biased. So we need to understand that when we do this survey, that the outcome impacts the user's feeling on the court. You go into a pro se litigation and you're suing someone and you lose the suit, the court is not fair. You win the suit, you tap dance down the hall and say the judge and the court is phenomenal. So we need to take that into consideration when we're seeking um, feedback about public trust and confidence in the court. Rick. Do you see the reason behind the public's perception of the courts as being an image problem? Or do you think that there are structural issues? Well, Pierre, I do think it's both. Rick Pierce, uh, but I think what the Pennsylvania Administrative do, Office of the Courts. The courts in general should do and, and are not doing is really 
framing the message that they want to send, they want to convey, and take these painstaking efforts to inform the adult public and educate those in secondary and even in even in elementary schools about the impartiality and about the absolute need for an independent judiciary. This is something, you know, I, I work with, in addition to my work here in, as a court administrator, work very closely with teenagers and in decide what they are learning in a school or to talk to them about what they're learning in school. And I will tell you that many of my experiences is that although they're learning more about the federal courts than they are about the state courts, they do have a greater sense of knowledge and a greater grasp of the judiciary than many adults that I have a conversation with. And the, the, the adults, they're their comprehension of the judicial system is largely framed by either the media and or lumped together with law enforcement uh, and not a separation of the two. And I think the courts, they have an obligation. If we, if we want to increase the trust and confidence level, then we have to go out there and frame the message and not let it up to others to tell and incorrectly, mind you, many times of what the courts are all about. Can't. I have a friend whose driver's license was suspended. He went to court, paid his fine and costs, and then thought he had taken care of his suspension. Although it was in the paperwork he received, he didn't understand that he now had to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles, apply to have his license reinstated, and pay more money before he would actually get his license back. Do courts focus too much on internal efficiencies but fail to focus on processes across multiple government agencies? I don't doubt that there's progress that can be made. Kent Pankey, Supreme Court of Virginia. Here at the state level in Virginia, we, we have various projects to connect to computer systems of Child and Protective Services and the state police. And, and obviously that can have benefits to the end consumer, you know, for whom government service in general doesn't necessarily distinguish between agencies and branches of government. It's just a general level of satisfaction. Just like the questions on the court tools measure one, access and fairness. If you get treated badly by the sheriffs at the door for security, you're still gonna ding the court for your overall perspective of how you were treated. So I think it's in the court system's interest to obviously look for ways that it can better serve its customers, whether that be through its own activities or how it connects to the services of, of other governmental bodies at the state and local level. I hear a lot of lawyer conversations in my office and in the hallway, but sometimes they really do not feel as though municipal court merits the same kind of attention that the common pleas and the court of appeals and so that can be a factor in how clients respond to our court. Exactly. Now, I know that the lawyers don't let Judge Elaine and Judge Alexander hear them say that, but I hear them say that. Yeah. And they don't feel like they are the big dogs until they go across the street. And I think that ends up being communicated either directly or by virtue of body language and et cetera to their clients. 
And that I think is a factor sometimes in disrespecting our courts. I get very angry because I tell them you can't go across the street till you come through here. Right. Well, well, Judge Ed Spillane, Municipal Court, College Station, Texas. When you look at what law students learn, they read appellate cases. They don't ever learn about municipal court, despite the fact that most citizens interact, they don't know about it. And recently I saw there was a Harvard Law Review article that argued that municipal courts ought to be abolished. And again, if you read that, the person had no sense of how much municipal court is a part of the actual legal system. And I think it reflected on the fact that, you know, and we're all like that. What, you know, we look at what's in our, on our plate and we don't always look what's, what's outside of that. But, and I have heard comments where people think, oh, it's not a real court or other things. And that sort of attitude does have an impact, not only in their clients, but just in general on what law students are taught, what other judges even focus on. That Harvard Law Review article is interesting because it's almost like they're blaming us for the fact that they don't know about us. Well, well, I will tell you that they probably have that. Judge Yvette Alexander, City Court, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I, at two o'clock at night, and it's coming to a municipal court. Um, A couple of the larger law firms on the civil side and on the criminal side, they use it as a training place for their lawyers. If they get smaller cases or if they get criminal cases over in city court, they assign three lawyers. And from that firm, those three lawyers come every time. And let's say they do that for a year and then they might get to go over to district court. But until you can come through there, like you said, and know the rules of civil procedure, the rules of criminal procedure, the rules of evidence, those kind of things, if you know they're taught in law school, but they're not practicing law school. I will say that both the LSU Law School, where I graduated from, and the Southern University Law School, they both have clinics in our courts. A mediation clinic, criminal clinic, uh, eviction clinic, and a civil clinic, which gives them knowledge of a civil court. The other thing about Baton Rouge is our court takes a shorter period of time than the 19th Judicial District Court. So sometimes lawyers, if they have an accident case that's right on the threshold, ours is 35, let's say they think it's worth 40, they still will file it in our court because they can get it through faster and they know that. So I'm sure we don't see partners in law firms and people like that, but we do see the junior associates or the first, you know, when they first get there. And I run into a lot of people at bar functions that say the reason they know how to practice law is because of the city court of Baton Rouge. But so. what they're thinking is they're starting at, as freshmen. And right. They need to, and, and that thinking, I think, creates a negative, can, can create a negative. Now, the other thing is when we talk about the public perception, we really, I would really like to distinguish between the civil and the criminal cases and the perception of the courts as it relates to the civil cases and then as, as it relates to, to the criminal cases. Because I think that um, there are different perceptions. And again, we have to allow for the fact 
that you win some and you lose some. And when you win, you love the court. And when you lose, you hate the court. And they've been unfair and biased. But there is um, the civil experience is different from the criminal experience. I heard you say, Judge Alexander, to Judge Fillane, that you were you're in a college town. And um, I circulated through Ohio University. That's a plug for the Bulldogs in Athens, Ohio. And we do have a university here in Youngstown. And I know the nature of the cases that come through on the college level. And I think that more often than not, you get parental involvement. And parental involvement always says, not my kid. Or it should not come to this level. This is just a college prank or a young person's fancy. And so I think those kind of, when I talk about demographics, I should also say age. And my, my court's almost 100% criminal, but how people are very, and I think Peter mentioned about how their confidence in court or how they perceive court is very much based on the outcome. But I have seen surveys that talk about because a lot of times people are not happy in court. They're not going to, it's not like shopping or something, you know, they're not going to get something that they want. But a lot of times in terms of procedural justice, a lot of times their satisfaction is based on, did they have a chance at least to be heard? Did they feel like we were neutral? And uh, that does give me confidence. It's sort of like, you know, the physicians who are often sued are more based on bedside manner than always the competence. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's how you perceive that you were treated as a defendant or a juror or whoever else interacts with our courts. That's often what's important, at least in my mind, versus the decision. It's, it's more important. How did you feel that you were treated? Were you able to understand what was going on? Were you able to have your voice, even if, you know, I just had a bench trial this morning where the person essentially admitted when they had their voice that they were guilty. But they did get a chance to say things and talk about what they didn't like about what the officer may have done or other things. And are ultimately, that is very important to uh, their view of our courts compared to the actual outcome. And I think that's one of the reasons why in civil cases, we see a lot of pro se litigation because people want to speak directly. They don't want to speak through the lawyer. And they have an opportunity to say specifically what they want said, as opposed to it going through a third party. So I have an opportunity to improve the perception of the court. When my staff interacts with people who come from the courtroom, now I need to tell you, that my staff takes a lot of abuse because they are not going to cuss at Judge Alexander or Judge Fillane. But they are going to come to the counter after the fines and costs and they've been found guilty and they are irate and they are coming down. They don't think anything has been done properly and they will give my staff the what for. My position with my staff is this. First of all, you are not the judge, it's not your fault. And you are not evaluating this case. You treat these people the way you would treat your mother and your grandmother, even when they call you out of your name. And so we, 
we collect the money. We, we put the holds on the licenses and the registration and all of that. But when they come to our counter, my policy is you treat these people with the respect that you would want someone to give to your mother. So I have saints and angels in my office. And we have an opportunity to ease some of the hostility that the guilty feel once the court process has been complete. I, I think a lot of it boils down to, uh, in, at least my perspective, of the ability of court personnel to connect with each individual court customer. That connection may be very brief in nature, but the, the sense that the individual matters when they come into the courthouse doors, whether they're serving as a juror, whether they're a litigant, witness, whatever it might be, but that they have this sense that they matter, that they, they are, they're not a number, and that the court is doing everything in their power to give them uh, that what we call procedural fairness, to give them their opportunity, their voice. You know, it, it may be maybe reducing it down to too uh, elementary of a level, but I would say the old adage of people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, I really do believe can be applied here if we are going to do this one individual at a time and increase the public's trust and confidence then we have to treat each individual, as Ernie Friesen says, and give individual justice in individual cases by making that connection with each person who comes to our court. It's a challenge, but it's something that's in our control, and it's something I think we can accomplish. Okay, I think the other factor that we need to consider when we talk about that, because the demographics really come in as it relates to diversity issues. Because if you go into a court, if you're a white female and you go into a court system that is full of all white male judges, there's a feeling of being the minority. Or if you're an African-American and you go into a court and you don't see any African-American faces or any Native American faces or any Asian American faces or uh, Latino American faces, so we do have to be cognizant of the demographics and how they impact the response as it relates to public trust and confidence. And, okay. and we, act, we actually are the courts that most citizens interact with. Lawyers, lawyers do not. So lawyers who have a big role in defining what a court is don't interact as much because we see so many pro se. But actually the average citizen, their idea of court is our courts. Mm -hmm. And you know that lawyer perspective is something else that we can examine because you know a lot in the municipal courts, a lot of the defendants have court appointed lawyers and the failure of a court appointed lawyer to fully represent the client oftentimes ends up resulting in people blaming the court. Right. Now, what can happen and what happens sometimes is uh, the client only meets the court-appointed lawyer in the hallway before they go into the courtroom. Right. And so their perception of the court is skewed by that negative interaction. And we, we need to be cognizant of that as well. And we don't have a lot of 
control over that because oftentimes the clients are hesitant when they get before uh, Judge Alexander and Judge Spillane to say, this lawyer just talked to me for 30 seconds outside the, the courtroom because they really feel as though um, they're in jeopardy if they do that. Because they do know, and I've heard them say, that judges are lawyers. So you don't want to uh, point the finger at a lawyer because you don't want to antagonize the judge. So that's a, that's another factor in the response to public trust and confidence. In the October podcast episode, Judge Clemens Landau from Utah mentioned that although remote hearings are more efficient, judges are routinely subjected to litigants who demonstrate little respect for the robe or the position. Yeah, that's what I've seen. That's a big negative. The positive is the ease of access, so especially like in Texas where, you know, people can be two hours, three hours away, but it's a real balance that we're, that I'm working through. It's kind of coming out of the pandemic, you know, because yeah. I, I value the in-person when I have incidents like that. I've had people turn on the camera and they're suddenly putting their shirt on and they, you know, it's, it's a... But Ed, I haven't ever tried one on um, camera. So how about the fact that you're the trier of fact? I hope it's like that in Texas. Yeah. And sometimes those cases go on really actually who you believe. Do you believe that you can get the same instinctive feeling? It's not as, no, it's not as, as good as in person. But if we have a case, I still do some if if everyone wants it and there's like one witness say for the state and I'll have a pro se defendant, you know, uh, but you're right. I mean, a traffic case at its essence is one one word against another's. And it right. is, no, you, it's not as good as in person. I, I mean, I can, so, it, but we're still trading some of that or if it's an uncontested, like a right. pretrial, um, mm -hmm. we will do virtual, some pretrial hearings if attorneys, you know, are in Houston, you know, two hours away and we're talking about 10 minutes, but um, it, it's still not as good as in person. Listen, like that um, on the on the video. I don't think, I think that's the best thing that happened for me. Be able to do all my status conferences, all those kind of things that, you know, you're not really need to know who's telling the truth or not. <laughs> You just kind of right, right. No, there's there. It, it allows access. I think for children at time with family law that I've heard and, and right. but it. But in terms of being able to tell the truthfulness of someone, I mean, in person's always better. So you're trading kind of a something for that. And uh, also, the people that get out of line, contempt power, and that kind of thing is right, kind of. Right. Of course, Judge Landau mentioned that you can always mute a litigant, which is something you can't do in an in-person hearing. I've had to do that. Yeah, we had a docket call where someone just kept uh, talking. Him. Yeah, you can remove them more easily with the Zoom. Yeah, it saves time and money. I want to thank Judge Yvette Alexander, Judge Ed Spillane, Rick Pierce, Kent Pankey, and Sarah Brown-Clark for joining us today and sharing their views on the public's trust of different levels of courts. Their reflections add to our ongoing conversation. Thanks also to my co-host, Stacey Werby, for her insights. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning into today's episode. No matter what level of court you work in, to paraphrase Rick Pierce, 
You show that each person matters. Thank you. Join us on Tuesday, December 20th, for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management. 